Hi, this is Toka US Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Sten Feldheim. After 35 years of coaching the Northern Michigan University Nordic Ski Team, Sten Feldheim retired in the spring of 2021, winning four NCAA Nordic Ski Team national titles, coaching 12 skiers who represented, actually 13 skiers who represented the US in the Olympic Games, and guiding seven NCAA individual champions since NMU joined NCAA in 1993 is amazing and impressive. So is being named the United States Ski Association Coach of the Year, or some iteration of that, six times, and being awarded over 30 times some type of Coach of the Year award. However, <clears throat> to me, none of these accolades capture why Sten is a true legend. His athletes and community revere him, not only for amazing achievement, but also for the profound change he has made in them. It is my great pleasure to conduct this interview with Sten Feldheim. I hope to do this great man justice and give followers a taste of this great man's character and perspective. Stan, thank you so much for being here with me today and for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you for the invitation. And um, it's my pleasure, Ian. So can you please tell me where you were born and when you started skiing? I was born in, uh, on the west coast of Norway. Um, they call it the, you know, the fjord area. I was born in a little town of Haugesund, um, and um, I, I, you know, my first recollection of skiing is I was so young. I, I just remember holding on to the end of my dad's ski pole, and him telling me just, just hang on, you know, and walking along on skis. And I don't know if you know this, but you know, Easter time in Norway, um, families uh, they all disappear. Man, you got to make sure you got your bread and your potatoes, and you got to make sure you got your goat cheese everything shut down um <clears throat> and so we'd head up into uh Selyesta, which is about a half hour 40 minutes from our hometown and we'd spend a whole week up there and we'd just ski around and the you know get up in the morning and you'd have your little backpack and your your parents would carry the majority of the provisions but you'd ski out and make a little campfire or roast hot dogs and build ski jumps and kind of venture off and with other kids and other families, it was a tradition. Um, those are my first, that's my first recollection is uh, the Easter holidays and skiing and kind of the day-to-day day -day skiing was more like out on the, in the parks and the little hills close to our hometown and skiing up and down the streets and, you know, just playing on skis. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Something that most people don't know about me, but I grew up doing that exact same thing with my family in Massachusetts. And I didn't realize at the time, and even for many years, what a treat and how unusual that was. But we would, my father would put a backpack on with a picnic lunch and we yeah. would all go out in a line behind him. I was the smallest and yeah. he would break trail and we would just go ski one direction through a bunch of cornfields and hills and whatnot. And then at some point we would stop and have a picnic lunch with hot chocolate and sandwiches and play around while everyone took a break and then ski back and usually be around three, four hours every time. And, but what an incredible way to, um, pass time as a family. Oh yeah. It was, it was wonderful. I mean, and there was never any, you know, technique instruction or anything. I mean, we just kind of learned on the go and, yeah. and, uh, I, I just absolutely loved it. Absolutely. So, when you were five years old, your family moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
your family culture was such that skiing was a common family activity, like we just talked about. Can you elaborate on, on that a little bit more, like playing on skis and your family skis in the United States as well, and you know, building jumps and jumping and just all the playing yeah. stuff you did? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I had a pair of red Sigmund Rude uh, cable binding skis. Of course, everything was wood back then, but I, I remember looking out the window, you know, in early winter, waiting for it to snow and staring at the street lights because there I could see if the snowflakes were coming down and just, you know, bugging my dad, you know, come on, let's get our skis ready. It's going to snow. And sometimes it would be like an inch of snow and, you know, eventually you'd get more, but we'd, I'd ski up and down the Minneapolis Parkway and I'd get all these looks from motorists driving by, you know, at stop signs, I'd ski up over the snowbank and run across the street, <laughs> ski to the next section and then ski down to the lakes, Lake Nokomis and over to Lake Harriet and, and Lake Harriet. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it was the first Twin Cities uh, Loppet. I don't know, but uh, we'd get all kinds of looks, you know, from people driving by. I remember the city bus would go by and all these heads would turn because they, they just weren't used to seeing people out skiing. You know, they had Alpine Hills there and, you know, little, little hills like uh, Buck Hill where some of the greatest Alpine skiers started, you know. But the cross country part was, it was really cool. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Hmm, super. Mm -hmm. There aren't many swamps out that way, but out in New England where I was growing up, we were skiing across swamps a lot in the winter too. And you had to be cold enough for the swamp to be frozen. That was a danger element there too. That's right. You know, it, get, it, gets, it gets pretty cold in Minneapolis. So, you know, one thing led to another from skiing across the lakes, you know, then I, I saw a big oval on Lake Nokomis and speed skaters. So then I got stuck in you know, and I, I wanted to try that. So then we got into speed skating and um, yeah, we used to ski from our house about a, a mile down some hills onto the parkway and and over to Lake Nokomis with my speed skates in the backpack and, and ski into the little warming hut, put my skates on and, and skate. And it was, uh, it was just a way of life. That's about as Nordic as it gets cross-country skiing to your, to, to, so you can speed skate in the lakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, speed skating was a pretty big deal in Minneapolis back then. A lot of people don't know it, but if you look in the history books, you know, there were uh, clubs, all kinds of clubs, a Powderhorn Speed Skating Club, Edina Speed Skating Club, Midway. Uh, we were part of the Richfield Speed Skating Club. And our coach, actually, his name was Johnny Workett. And uh, we met him at church. You see, there's a Norwegian church in Minneapolis. And they call them the Blue-Eyed Arabs. I'm not sure why, but maybe it's because when they discovered oil in the 70s. Right, right. <laughs> but there was, you got to realize there was all kinds of people meeting in the, at this church that were from different parts of Norway. So you had 300 some different dialects in Norway. And so we'd meet these old timers that came over, you know, on the boat when they were like 16 and they'd stayed here and they were from Trondheim or they're from way up in Alta, Norway, or they're from Southern Norway. And so it became like this community and Johnny Workett, our coach had married a, a woman from Hamar, Norway. And her name was Vesla. And he had a couple sons. Uh, Jimmy was my age. And Johnny Workett was actually probably the best speed skater the United States had ever had until, you know, uh, Eric Hyden came along. Uh, so Johnny had won a uh, silver medal in the 1500 meter. And 
in the Olympics or world championship, sorry. And he had competed on a couple of Olympic teams. So we had a heck of a coach. Hmm. Awesome guy. Super. You yeah. also at that time, um, ski jumped. You want to tell us about ski jumping growing up? Yeah. In <clears throat> yeah. One of my uh, adventures out skiing, I skied by a place called Minneapolis Falls and there was a, a 30 meter jump there. So I stopped to talk to a couple kids and they were part of the Minneapolis ski club. So I said, I want to try that, you know? And so I got a pair of these Kongsberg jumping skis from the club and they were heavy. Let me tell you, it's like you had to park yourself underneath the jumping skis and get them on your shoulder when you're just a little guy, you know? But I'd go down there and jump as much as I could. And there'd be like 30 to 50 kids there packing the hill. Of course, they didn't have piston bully, but it was all up to the kids to sidestep and pack the hill. And then the better, the better the older kids are, the better jumpers, they'd set the track, you know. So, so you didn't have a machine set deep track. You just had to follow, you know, by the time it was your turn, you're maybe the 10th or 12th or 15th kid. And there is like a quarter inch deep or half inch deep track. And you just stayed in there and you jump. Um, I wasn't very good, but I tell you what, it was, it was a blast. I just absolutely loved it. So that was my introduction to uh, Nordica Mine in a way. <clears throat> That's super. Um, when you were 12, your family moved back to Oslo, Norway, for your father's work. He worked as a building engineer. That's right. You started skiing more when you were back in Norway, taking the train after school to go up to Nordmarka to ski at the age of 14 after seeing the Holmenkollen ski events, ski festival events, and after jumping in some fun races, you became more motivated to ski race. After four more years, after four years in Oslo, you moved back to Minneapolis. How formative for you were those four years in Oslo? Oh, it was, that, that set the cornerstone of my interest in and passion for skiing, um, especially when um, I think I was in the seventh or eighth grade, but our whole class, you know, uh, showed up at class and, and the teacher said, well, it's a home cold week. So, you know, we're going to show up here every day with your backpack with lunch and we're going to walk from here up the home cold. And it was about a, a seven kilometer hike. And we, so we started walking up and before I knew it, the streets were no cars. It was full of people because everybody was walking up the home cold. And I thought, wow, this is super cool. And then when I got there, you know, one day it was the jumping and next day was biathlon. Next day was the cross country. And I remember watching Paul Tildum in the 50K win. And, and the king actually was there, came and gave him a, you know, medal. It was, you know, I was so inspired. At first, I, I couldn't figure out why all the skiers coming by had had red stains on their their white you know suits or on their knickers. Well, it was feed, you know, it was from taking a feed. Um, and another thing that amazed me was the just the enthusiasm of the people there and the crowd. It was deafening, you know. And we were younger, so we could be down by where a lot of the school kids were banging on the, the signs and the bulletin boards, you know, in the stadium. And it was deafening. And I was just like, I got to do this, man. I got to this is this really fired me up. So then from that point, um, I talked to a few boys in my class and found out they were part of the lean ski club. And some were part of a different club and they're arguing about which club was the best. And I didn't care. I just went skiing with them. 
and uh, got in behind them. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't an uncommon thing for them to pull over and go, hey, here comes so-and-so, you know. One of them was Ivar Formu, you know, he's going to be one of the best, you know. Jumped in behind them and kind of copied them and lasted maybe two or three kilometers. And, you know, I was like, wow, that was going to school. That was really, really fun to see. And uh, that's something you see kids grow up with seeing in their way. You know, you, you'll see people out skiing in Newmarka that are World Cup winners. And, and, and you see them on TV. And so kids are exposed to this all the time. They're exposed to good technique and they see them skiing and you can jump in there, <laughs> try not to step on the tails of their skis or their poles, but take an opportunity to ski with them, you know. Um, that really fired me up. I have a question for you. In the United States, in the Midwest, the American Birkebeiner is a phenomenon. Yes. It transcends culture. So in Utah, you've got the snowmobilers, you got the alpine skiers, you got the cross-country skiers, and they don't get along really. You know, there's more of a crossover between alpine and Nordic in Utah because of backcountry and right. Nordic skiers, alpine ski. But there's there are still as a culture clash and division in many cases. Right. And you go to the Midwest, and there's much more of a marriage between um, all all these divisions, especially when it comes to Berkey time. Everybody supports the Berkey. It's it transcends all cultures or subcultures. Can you talk about the Norwegian, the Holmenkollen Ski Festival, and and how it's all encompassing? It's unifying. It's it's the, it's Norway more or less. Yes, it is. Um... It's, it's amazing. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, the, the middle schools and the, and the grammar schools, you know, they they take the kids up there, you know, to be part of that culture. And another thing is, you know, you mentioned snowmobiles. Well, in Norway, you, you, you can't own a snowmobile, just go ride it anywhere. The only people that have snowmobiles, it's for people working on trails or the hotels, you know, to transport your luggage or whatever. There, there is no like, snowmobile industry there per se you know we're here it's uh well it's a multi-million dollar industry and in, in the upper peninsula you know there's snowmobile trails i can ski from here to ironwood if i want or from here to sault st marie the, i can ski across the the whole country practically on snowmobile trails um i have a friend that uh, this guy i knew that drove his snowmobile from marquette to maine you know i mean oh. yeah 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 um it's just you know so it's it's a ski culture in norway you know it, it's it's their national sport um and holmacolm is just kind of the well it's it's the icing on the cake you know it's what everybody's waiting for you know when they had the world championships there was it 2011 i think right around there um there was over 20,000 people that lived in the woods for a week. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and, and that's its own culture in itself. You know, the, right. the, the living in the woods activities during the home and Cold ski festival week, the, the soups and how they camp and the fires and yep. the parties. And, you know, it's its oh, own, yeah. it's its own phenomenon. It's, it's amazing. Well, you know, at the 94 Olympics was incredible. So I was there with, uh, some guys coaching, you know, uh, Gordon Lang, Jim Galanis, um, who I had just a ton of respect for. Uh, we were there coaching, and um, and at about the kilometer mark, you ski out the stadium, the trail split, 
And uh, I noticed there was this old timer there. He must have been well into his 70s. He had a shovel and he was building what looked like, you know, quite the uh, igloo. And it was, you know, he is just out there every day. And so after about four days, you know, it looked like he was getting it almost done. And it was about two or three days before the Olympics were going to start. So I, I started talking to him a little bit. And uh, here he had skied over from Rana, you know, brought his shovel and his food and everything on a sled. And I asked him, I said, are you going to sleep in there during the Olympics? And he looks at me and he goes, what's wrong with you? Am I going to sleep in here? Hell no, I'm going to party in here. My buddies are showing up in a couple of days. We're going to, there was six of them in there. And they had their, uh, their uh, reindeer skins and they had built, you know, like couches outside and put the reindeer skins on. They had their fire going. I mean, I just, people just can't imagine that here. I mean, it, it's just the culture. It's unbelievable. It, yeah, it was, it was deafening. You know, the, the crowd was so deep all the way around that trail, whether it was a 10K loop or a 5K loop, there was like six, seven people deep. You had to listen to a radio and the athlete, you know, to hear what was going on, uh, people had the radios on and it was so loud that the athletes, you had the right, you know, when the Norwegian coaches, they had the right on a whiteboard, they're split because they couldn't yell at them loud enough. It was deafening. It was unbelievable. And as coaches, if you were out there, I remember uh, Glanis and I were out there during the 50K, we, you had to have your skis on, your backpack on, ready to go after the last gear went by and you had to jump in the track and ski as hard as you could because once the last gear went by, the crowds just stepped over the fencing. And if you got stuck in that crowd, you weren't coming back to the wax trailer for another hour or two, you know? <laughs> it was just crazy it was quite the experience i, I want to get back to what we were talking about but i, I can't help myself yeah. home and colon is an interesting place too um you can see the ocean clearly and yes. it's just above oslo so yep. you know you have this major metropolitan area and then you drive up it's a super steep hill going up to home and colon and there you have a this this historic and world-class ski center with all the different disciplines it's quite unique to have such a large city next to this world-class ski center that you can even see the ocean from right it's, it's really a special place and uh it also gets foggy sometimes which creates some some yeah. interesting conditions that's but true it's, it's a really magical place huh it's very magical you know Nordmarka. uh if you if you unfold the map it's gonna cover your dining room table and if, if you count the number of kilometers of trails, you're going to get around 7,000 kilometers of groomed trails. <laughs> and they have an app now. You got this app on your phone and you can look at it and it'll they'll have little red dots where the uh, piston bullies are grooming. And you yeah. see these several of these red dots and the green ones mean that if there's a green dot means that they're, they're done grooming, right? So you can take a train out as as kids, we'd take a train to the further out in Newmarka and you'd ski four hours back. And, and you never skied more than about, oh, six to eight Ks at the most till you got to a kiosk or a, a little cafe where you could go and have a sandwich or warm up your fingers or whatever, your toes, uh, or have something to eat. 
I mean, that was every Sunday I did that. Every Sunday you'd see families out there. There's even a chapel out there. Yeah, beautiful too. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's just a way of life. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. So you were there doing these activities between 12 and 16 years old, and you're doing it with your peers, not only with your family, which, is, right. which really makes a, a huge cultural impact right. on, you, on your personal culture, I think you could say. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you were 16, like I said, your family moved back to the Twin Cities. You were in your junior year of high school, and you were on the ski team for both ski jumping and Nordic skiing. I think some people will be surprised to hear about kids back then being in ski jumping programs in high school. We had that uh, a little bit before my time in my area, too. But can you speak about that? Yeah. Um, of course, we had an alpine team as well, uh, men's and women's. Um, and uh, ski jumping was really quite unique. Uh, we throw our uh, uh, jumping skis in the school bus, kind of laying flat on the floor, head over to Theater Worth. And uh, uh, actually my, my teacher in history, my history uh, teacher, his name was Lars Kindem. And he was heavily involved with creating the Central Division, which I, I didn't know. And he spoke Norwegian. So Kindem's a Norwegian name. He came from Northfield, Minnesota. And he, he looked, he read my name on the first day of class and he looks at me and he goes, you're Norwegian, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, why haven't you signed up for my Norwegian class? And I'm like, you have a Norwegian class? And of course, I'm thinking easy A, right? right. <laughs> so I signed up for his Norwegian class and it turns out he was a ski coach. So long story short is that he's the one that kind of got me going in uh on the ski team, because I didn't even know there, there's no sports in high school in Norway, you know, you, you join a club. Right. And so, uh, so I signed up for this, the ski team and uh, the jumping, I was just shocked because, you know, Lars would bring a kid up there that thought he wanted to be a ski jumper. He'd show him the in-run position and on the ground, and then he'd bring him up to the top and he'd say, okay, and I usually put your bindings on and bend over and he'd just give him a push. And this one kid, I remember, stood straight up, you know, and screamed the whole way off. <laughs> off he went. So it was a little bit of everything, you know. Mm -hmm. And there were some really good ski jumpers. I remember Kip Sungard actually might have even made the Olympic team. But um, there were you know, quite a few good ski jumpers from that area. And uh, one of them I eventually met at NMU. Uh, he was from Ely, Minnesota. And he made the 80 Olympic team as Jim Grahek. Um, and so he jumped for NMU because they had uh, ski jumping in college until about 82 or 83. Stem, when, you were, when you were in high school, did you have the ski meister titles and ski no, meister competitions? No, we didn't. But I wish we would have because um, so for the jumping part, Lars would, anybody that wanted to do the cross country and the jumping, he would give you the first, get, get the first couple bib numbers. So after your second jump, you could run over to the school bus and pull out your cross-country skis, go to the other side of the golf course and, and ski in the cross-country races. And um, our uh, high school jumping coach was, was nice enough to tell me that, you know, I know you really like this, but you're not very good. I, you know, I saw that you won the cross-country part. Why don't you just focus on that? So I thought about it for a while. I really... I really knew, I knew I wasn't very good, but boy, it was so much fun. You know, I just really loved it. Um, 
but I went into the cross country part because there's part of, you know, having fun is winning is part of it too. So, so I went in with a group of guys and did the cross country and kind of hung up the jumping skis my senior year and, and really, really had a great time with it. And that, that's how I got started in ski racing in, um, in, in, in the United States was through the high school. Cool. So after high school, you were recruited to ski for NMU. At the time, NMU competed in the NCSA, which is now called USC, uh, USCSA. Yeah. You skied for NMU and after college at a high level representing the United States in the World University Games, in the Polar Cup, and being on the US ski team and US marathon team. The Polar Cup was a kind of like a spring caliber or a spring World Cup field caliber series with that was a whole lot of fun I, I participated in the polar cup a couple times and i remember uh, getting lamps and fire extinguishers for for yeah. uh, for awards which was really bizarre but cool um and uh racing well, i'd say two out of every three days yeah. and, and uh moving from from one site to a next on a, on a tour bus super fun and a great opportunity to to kind of bang heads with the world's elite um, on an informal basis. It was really a great experience for me. And you got anything else to talk about, uh, to say about Polar Cup? Or, yeah. yeah, I had this, I had the same experience at the Polar Cup. Um, you know, when, when you're coming into a stadium and all of a sudden the crowd is going crazy, you know, we're somewhere in Finland, might have been Yavaskula or someplace like that. It was up in Northern Finland and uh, the crowd just went nuts. And, uh, all of a sudden, I heard this person breathing like a freight train. It was Juha Mieto. And I and I and then I realized, like, why wow, the crowd? We're in Finland, and he's like a hero, you know. And I look over to my left, you know, because he's coming on my left. And I looked right at his hip. I mean, the guy was a giant, right? I just looked over, and I could see his hip. So as he went by, I jumped in behind him. And, oh, my gosh, you know, like, talk about learning. It was It was really, really cool. And... To be able to get out there and race, it seemed like almost every day, it was just it's it invaluable as an experience. And you, you kind of realize like, wow, you know, like I can, I, I think I can hang on to this guy, you know, and you'd hang on to him for a K next race. It'd be a couple more Ks and a couple more Ks. And, you know, even Gundesvan came by one time and my skis were better than his. I was out gliding him on the downhills and he had to work really hard to pass me on the uphills. And, uh, you know, cause it's springtime and you know, that builds confidence, you know, like we waxed our own skis. I mean, that's the way it was. I mean, yeah, we waxed our own skis. I used the combination of like a little bit of that yellow Swix clister wax and, and corked a little bit of blue extra into it. And it, it wasn't icing up as bad as his were. Um, so, you know, to have Gundesvan come over and ask me after the race, find me, even though he just, you know, really beat me by a couple of minutes in a 10 KV, came over to find me to find out what I had waxed my skis with, you know, and here, you know, and some of the top guys were waxing their own skis. It was pretty yeah. informal, pretty informal. It was like, they just brought the racers from town to town because, uh, people wanted to see him, you know, these guys would sign autographs and. And uh, yeah, we'd kind of walk away. Nobody asked us for us uh, our autograph, but you know, it was really a cool experience. I had a similar experience. My first Polar Cup race was in Pitio, Sweden. <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of snow at the time there, so it was um, 
the Nordic area is next to a little alpine area and we kind of combined the course there. It was a multi-loop course. And Ova only came by me uh, after his first lap when I was starting. So my in, in, entire race plan went out the window and my goal was to stay with him as long as I could. Of course. Of course. You know, experience like that is is so rare. And um, another thing that happened, which is really cool, is I went in to eat breakfast one day and there wasn't much room. And Gundeswam was eating breakfast with Marie Johansson, and his girlfriend at the time. And and he kind of waved me over and said, no, 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 come sit with us. So I, you know, this young first time international outside, outside of World Juniors, first time international ski trip. And here I was eating breakfast, just Gundeswam and Marie Johansson and myself. And we talked about all sorts of stuff. It was such a treat. What an experience. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, you mentioned Uva only. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> 94 Olympics, there is a crossing guard standing there. And I'm like, boy, that guy sure looks familiar. <laughs> so I went over to him and I asked him, you're Uva only, aren't you? And he goes, last time I checked, I was. And so I said, I, I remember you racing and winning in Telemark, Wisconsin, that first kind of in, informal, or I guess, unofficial World Cup. And Tony Wise had brought in the whole uh, tribe, local tribe there, the chief and the whole thing. Uh, and he was awarded, you know, the chief took off since he, he was the winner. So his award was the chief took off this big headdress and put it on his head. And I could tell by looking at him like, wow, you know, that is amazing. So I asked him, I said, I saw you get the headdress the, the, from the chief. And he goes, you know what? That's the only thing I really ever have out. Every, all my medals and things are in boxes. I don't know where they're somewhere in the attic, but he goes, that headdress, that's under a glass case in my study. <laughs> that's fantastic. Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what did you do with the garbage you won on the Polar Cup? Like, um, you know, all I could do was give away the lamps and, um, like I said, fire extinguishers and stuff like that. Did you find a good oh, one for them or what did you do? Went to the highest bidder. Are you <laughs> kidding me? I, I won a set of winter tires. <laughs> exactly. And uh, uh, what else? To, you know, you, I'm thinking of these random things. I really think back. Oh, like a, a Laplander, uh, the the some eh? you know it's a laplander they have these fur reindeer coats uh so i won one of these things i'm like it was so heavy i'm like it weighed more than my ski bag and so i just held it up in the air and then people are, were buying these things and and a toolbox full of like metric tools and yeah it, it just we're selling them and you could go to that local town wherever town it was in the race was in and then the store windows you know, like this hardware store, whenever they're going to give away the car tires or yeah. give away the toolbox. And you could kind of see what 15th place was or yeah. what first place. First place was, um, I think Todd Booster won a sauna there, <laughs> you know, and he sold it to the highest bidder. So, yeah, it was quite the experience. Absolutely. And how cool is that? You know, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Really cool. So, like I was saying, you were on the U.S. ski team, U.S. marathon team from around 82 to 86. In December of 1985, I was in the World Team Trials. It's kind of comparable to today's January version of U.S. Nationals. We call them at the time World Team Trials. And as a young man, I finished 10th. And from then on, I was quite competitive in the senior ranks, despite only being 18. 
but I don't recall skiing against you that year. I thought maybe you were there. Um, I know you had a reputation of being a tough competitor, but I never actually got to know you as a ski racer. First question is, did you race in those races? It was, um, it was one race in the pouring rain in Jackson, New Hampshire, and then it got cold with big puddles and stuff. And then, um, and then it got cold and then it was a ice skating rink. And the next yep. week was in a blizzard in Waterville Valley. Oh yeah. Like, I remember that. I, I remember that. I remember that because I saw Kevin Brockman disappear into one of those puddles. Exactly. Um, I, you know, he, Kevin, I have so much respect for Kevin. Great guy, good friend. But when he hit that puddle and face planted and all I saw was the top of his hat submerged, you know, the rest of him was submerged. I couldn't help but laugh. You know, and I'm just thankful that he was just a little bit ahead of me and I could see that you needed to sit back and kind of like, it's the only time I've ever been in a ski race where I water skied at the same yeah. time. You just were skidding across these puddles and it was, yeah, it was brutal. So, and, so yeah. I didn't do as well on you, as you did with that. Uh, I also saw someone hit the puddle and did a somersault. So yeah. their entire body, you know, submerged. Yeah. And it was the puddle, the big, big puddle. Most of it was after that downhill. There was an uphill that you were, it was a flat on the way to the uphill that you would do before you hit the downhill and go through the puddle. Yeah. And so I was going up that gradual up, looking at the per people coming down the hill into the puddle. And I was a late starter and a person did a somersault. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to do that. So on my way down, I slowed down and thought I would kind of just like scoot through it. And at a slow speed, there's so much suction. You could barely move your skis. Yeah. So I lost a ton of time trying to get through that dang puddle because it was so <laughs> deep. My skis were stuck to the ground, you know, yeah. so that, that totally blew up in my face. Yeah. And I ended up three and a half minutes out that day. And that was, I was better in classic than I was at skate back then. And it was a total, like, you know, my, my, it just turned everything up and down because the next two races were skate and I was actually stronger in classic. Uh, but I ended up having really, really good skate races and winning, winning, doing really well. Um, but that was a heck of a day. <laughs> oh yeah, that was that was incredible. I think, uh, yeah, when I think back about that, how it was so varied. You know, like one day it was pouring rain, and then it was below zero, really, really cold. It was scary. Yeah, <laughs> it was scary to race. I mean, I remember seeing uh, uh, mattresses strapped to trees on exactly. some of the downhills. Old school. <laughs> yeah, yep. and. Uh, I saw one guy, he got off the course somehow, just out of the corner of my eye, and he reached up and he grabbed a tree branch to try to slow himself down, and it snapped off. Oh. And so now, now I'm watching this guy going down, trying to carry this, like, look like a big two by long two by four. And when he hit the ground, the stick just exploded. And I, I, I think he, he lived to talk about it. But, I mean, it was nuts. <laughs> you know, generally, I've always enjoyed fast skis, and I've always looked for fast skis, and I never really cared about stability. You know, it's all about fast skis for me, and I can ski on whatever. But that one day, oh I actually foregoed, I, uh, foregoed my fastest skis, not only because I, um, I wanted to protect them a little bit too, but I had a pair of other skis that were more stable, and they weren't as fast in general, but it didn't seem like it mattered because it was a full-on ice skating rink. Yeah. And, and I was, uh, you know, there's the upper part of the course and the bottom part of the course. And you cross the road and you go charging down these incredibly steep, exciting downhills. And uh, 
I mean, that was more or less alpine skiing with the, with the conditions we had on Nordic skis with mattresses on the trees. And, and it was death-defying. And, uh, and I made so much time on those downhills, but I was really grateful for having super stiff, laterally stiff uh, skis that were not fast, but man, I was making tons of time on those downhills. Yeah, yeah, that, you, you made the right choice there, I'll tell you. Evidently, I ended up winning, uh, I was still a junior, even though I was top 10 in the seniors, but I ended up winning the juniors in both those days. And then to top it off, so you had the, the puddles and pouring rain, then you had the ice skating rink, I mean, for real, everywhere. And then we got about a foot and a half of snow in the last race of the series in Waterville Valley the week later, the total blizzard. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a heck of a race series. Anyway, crazy. I, I, was, I was curious if you were there. So um, can you describe yourself as a ski racer? Well, um, you know, I was ambitious. Um, I loved I loved to ski race. Uh, I was very competitive, probably to a fault at times. Um, needed to calm down, maybe. Um, but you know, there is a group of us here from the Midwest. We're like a band of brothers, you know. Yeah. And we travel all over, getting a jam into a Duncan McLean, Tony Hartman jam into his car. Um, he had a uh, Chevy Impala. So that's a finished Cadillac, actually, up here. We call it an Impala, Chevy Impala. And we'd drive all over, Roger McCurry, Duncan McLean, Tony Hartman, Sean Coos, you know, Torin Coos's dad. Um, we drove out east many times across Canada. And we were bound and determined to, like, be as good as we could be. That's we didn't know anything really about, you know, back then you didn't have the internet. You couldn't read blogs about training. There was very little information, but uh, we try to pick people's brains. And I have to say that the first time we drove out East, I went to uh, 1974, we drove all the way to Putney, Vermont. And uh, I remember the course went through some apple orchards and kind of wound around by the school there. But this, this guy came by me, this athlete came by me, he was just flying, you know. And he didn't have wooden skis either. He had fiberglass skis. I'd never seen fiberglass skis. He came flying by, and I just was so amazed in this tempo that I, you know, back then, double pulling, you know, it was kind of you whip your poles out in front, and you had this big, long, deep double pull. And this guy's just pow, pow, pow. So I copied it, you know, and tried to hang on, didn't hang on for long. But after the race, this, this guy comes up to me and introduces himself. It was Bill Coke. And uh, he goes, hey, good job, you know. I said, oh, thanks. He goes, you have to get yourself a pair of these. And he had a pair of, show me his fiberglass skis, right? I was like, well, where, where do you get these, you know? And well, you know, he gave me a couple leads and eventually got a pair of fiberglass skis. But the reason I'm telling this story is like it was really, really cold. And this guy was fast. And I was, I was like, you know what? He's like some of the top Norwegians that I'd met when I lived in Oslo. They're very humble. You know, they don't strut around thinking that they're really something, you know. Um, really nice guy. And I got his name. And then I realized, like, this dude is really good. Really good. Then I think, I think he either won or he was second. And it was so cold. And this is before Peter Heaters, you know, before 
win briefs. Man, I had to find a place to cry. So they had the award ceremony in the school and, and you're just in pain. And I look over and I saw there was like a janitor's closet. I got in there and just sat on this bucket and just trying, you know, like it's so painful. Like you think you're going to throw up, you know, or whatever. And then the door opens and this young man looks in at me, tall guy. He looks in, he goes, huh? Yeah. You know, you should bring an extra pair of gloves to put in your shorts. And that was Tim Caldwell. So it didn't take long for me to figure out watching the award ceremonies that these local boys were awfully, awfully good. Then I met old man John Caldwell, who I have so much respect for. And he's always been a nice guy. And I asked him about training and he showed me some, drew on a napkin how to build a roller board and talked about these Putney armbands, you know, with bike inner tubes around your ankles and around your waist. So I built some of those. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, the rest is history. Once, once I realized, like, I had this feeling like, well, these guys can do it out here skiing through apple orchards or whatever, you know, I got no excuses. I, we got to go home guys. We got to do this, you know? So this group of guys I was with, you know, that was like our, our team. And when I came to NMU, um, NMU was back then in the NCAA. Um, it changed the NCSA after I had skied at NMU through 79. It oh. changed it. NCSA. Yeah. So, so then we, um, the coach, he lives in, in, in near Boston, um, Myron Gallagher, Gary Gallagher. He was our coach here, just super guy. He was very, very, very supportive guy. He, when I was a freshman, he said, we're going to go race the Dartmouth Winter Carnival. And uh, there, were, there was no women skiing yet in NCAA. That didn't happen until 84, which is crazy to think of, huh? It's just crazy. But anyways, we drove all the way from Marquette to Hanover in a Volkswagen, one of those buses, Volkswagen bus, you know, the thing, the heater, damn, the damn heater didn't work. <laughs> and so we were wearing everything we brought with us, parkas, warm up pants over your jeans. I mean, just to stay warm in that thing. And we went there and again, I saw kind of this New England ski culture, you know, the, the Dartmouth Winter Carnival. I had never, I didn't even know Dartmouth, where it was, what it was, anything. And I was just so impressed, like with the crowd, you know, it was like a late afternoon evening race and they had, it was lit with barely lit and torches. And well, anyways, Holger Mortman, who was a skier from Norway, Ula Kokslin, whose son is Miko Kokslin, it was an Olympic Nordic combined guy. Holger, Ula and I, we, we won it. And we're, we're wearing these bright orange one-piece knicker suits. They were orange with a green stripe. And somehow our coach, Myron Gallagher, Gary, I think his girlfriend started this company called AFRC. And they made the first, like, Lycra suits. And when we pulled those out of the bag, we're like, either we're going to look, like, really ridiculous or we're get, it's going to be cool if we ski fast. So we're, we're really motivated to ski fast. I think Culver won. I think Ula was second or third. And I was like sixth, I think. So these so were we, Lycra knicker suits? Yeah, the one piece. Yeah, but, but knicker suits. 
Knicker, yeah, they were knicker yeah. suits. Yeah, so one yeah. piece suits, but down to the knee. Down to the knee, yeah. And then you use the socks, yeah. Yeah, and we had the socks, white yeah. socks. And uh, and it had like this ironed on uh, letters, you know, NMU, right? And uh, I think the guy that had been winning all the carnivals there was uh, Craig Ward. And I later got to know Craig and his son, but uh, it said NMU on my leg. And he came up and he was so surprised. Like, where, where are you guys from? What is NMU? Is that New Mexico? <laughs> I said, no, it's Northern Michigan. Well, where? And I said, well, the upper, in the UP of Michigan. He goes, what the hell's the UP? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, we'll just put it this way. We beat you guys. <laughs> it's in Michigan, Bud Lake Superior. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the, so the last, the, when Chris Cook won the NCAAs in Hanover at Dartmouth in 2003, we're leaving the banquet and I went over and I saw they had a big like display case for their outing club. And I went and I looked for it and there it was, there was the cup. And I go, hey, Chris, come here, look. I go, look at 1976. And he goes, I'll be damned, Northern Michigan University. And I said, that's the one and only time we went out there, but we had a heck of a time. And it was kind of my introduction to college skiing, you know? And yeah. Yeah, even though we came out in a red Volkswagen van that said happy days are here again because it was the bicentennial it had stars and stripes on it and uh, boy did we stick out like a sore thumb when we drove through canada um yeah it was quite quite the interesting trip that's a haul too that's yeah, a haul yeah yeah that's a, that's a haul yeah. yeah got any other uh ski race stories before we switch to oh. coaching oh man it it's yeah i am uh, I do, uh, I guess the ones that, there's a lot of them, but, you know, the ones that really stand out are um, having this group of guys and going and racing in the East and trying to make the U.S. team and supporting each other. But having athletes like Tim Caldwell, Bill Cope, Stan Dunkley um, come up and, and say hello and say good race, they were inspiring, right? And then it was like either 77 or 78, we're in, somewhere in Vermont, we had the U.S. Nationals and it used to have the relay. I think it was right around 77. And it was Sean Coos, myself, Duncan McLean. And it was a, it was a regionals relay. So, or it was nationals, but you raced as, you know, like the U.S. ski team had U.S. Yeah. ski team one, U.S. ski team two, and you had New England and then you had yes. Central. Well, we finished second or third in that relay. And I remember uh, <clears throat> start, I started it because I love starting relays. I wish I would have sprinting when I was a racer, but I hung on to this guy named Doug Peterson mm. with a US ski team suit on. It was two 5K loops. And on the second loop, skiing up this long climb, kind of on a power line, I just said to myself, this is just like doing ski walking up Marquette Mountain or, um, or bounding, you know? doing Elko's and I, I tracked him and couldn't get rid of him, but I tracked him. And it was the first time that I realized like we could skew these guys, you know? And we ended up, of course, 
sticking with the team until the last leg, and that was Bill Coke. And uh, Sean Cruz had to say sayonara to Bill Coke because he was just gone. But but after the race, okay, this is what stands out in my mind. After the race, we're we're kind of high fiving with each other, and we're back by our uh, our finished Cadillac, the Impala. We're putting our skis away, and here comes Marty Hall, comes walking over, and he says, "Hey, who are you, dogs?" And we're like, "Oh, well, we're the Central Dogs." <laughs> <laughs> as in, as in, he wanted to know, you know, like, who are you guys? We introduced ourselves, um, but that name, Central Dogs, you know, that stuck with us for years. And we were bound and determined to win that relay for years. We were second, 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 second. We had people like Todd Booster, Todd Kempinen, Steve Pittman on the relay team, all central boys, you know, and we just could never win that thing. And then in 1985, I believe it was 85 nationals were in, uh, in uh, California, uh, up high there. I forget Roll the board, name. Yeah. Yeah. Royal Gorge, yeah, Royal Gorge. And uh, it was a three-man relay. It was Brockman, myself, and Todd Boonstra. And Alaska had Aldun Endestad and Bill Spencer. And I can't remember who the third guy was, but we hung on to those guys. We were duking it out. And they come to the finish. It was Boonstra and Bill Spencer. And just before they crossed the line, I mean, here they come double pulling. It was just through this racing each other. Just before they crossed the line, they held hands and held their hands up together and crossed the line. And I was standing with my, my relay mate there, Brockman, and Brockman goes, What? What the hell is he holding hands for? You know? And I said, I, I think his foot went across the line first, you know? And so, Again, we got, they said we were second, but then somebody showed up like hours later with a video camera and we actually were first. And, you know, at that point we didn't bother to, to, to do anything. It was past the protest time and who cares, right? We, we just cared, you know, well, it's just us three guys. We're like, oh, we actually won the thing. Look at, you know, here's your foot, here's your toe. So all those years of being second, we can say we finally did win it once. And uh, I think Brockman actually actually stayed friends with Todd, wasn't too angry after that. But <laughs> well, at least Todd won, you know. I mean, that's one way to win. Hold hands and then stick your foot in front, you know. Yeah. Do what you gotta do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things have become so much more official now with the timing and the chips and the photo finishes, you know. Yeah. Back in the day, it was like, yeah, you were lucky to see handwritten results an hour after, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, super. That's all. That's a cool story. Um, how was it you became the NMU ski coach? Uh, Rick Calmly, the NMU athletic director at the time, said, hiring Stim was the best decision that I ever made. And he went on to become the most successful coach ever at NMU. So we know that, but how did it, how did it happen? Well, um, you had never coached before, correct? No, no, I hadn't really coached before. I'd helped some people and, and I was studying um, sports science. I had a little bit of physiology background as an undergraduate. And then when I, that year I had started graduate school and uh, I, 
I had accepted a part-time job and at Northern to coach the team just to help me pay for my graduate school, basically. And uh, it was early in the fall, one of the first weeks of school when I was walking out of class, I bumped into the athletic director, Rick Conley. He knew me from years past and I'd done some triathlons and won some running races, stuff around. And he asked me if I'd be interested in making it a full-time job because uh, the uh, cross-country running coach had just quit. So, of course, uh, I told him I'd let him know the next day to talk to Pam. And we just found out Pam is, my wife Pam was pregnant. And uh, we thought, well, boy, they got a hell of a good uh, health insurance package, even though the salary was, wasn't much at all, but the health insurance. So I, I said, sure. So I took on the, the running job and the ski coaching job. And that's kind of how it all how it all started and it just went from there. Super. Okay. Um, I know you're not interested in bragging about yourself, but um, I feel I need to do that. So if you don't mind, let me talk for a few minutes here and then we can go back to our conversation. As I mentioned in the introduction, you have been unbelievably successful as an NMU ski coach. Some of your accomplishments include the following and the NCSA era, 1986-92, you won four men's and one's, one women's national team championship title. In the NCAA era, which is 1993 to the present, you won two women's NCAA national championship titles and at least one's, one men's national team championship title and three overall NCAA national team Nordic titles. You had 13 skiers on Olympic teams that you coached, seven NCAA individual champions, six U.S. national champions, in 2007, NMU had an extra special year. The NMU women swept the top three podium spots in both races at the NCAA championships, which has never been done since or before. Lindsey Weir or now Dellen, uh, Lindsey Williams and Morgan Smith with the three. Uh, in both races, top three. I believe that year also, well, for sure, that year also, the NMU women also swept the podium at U.S. Nationals in Houghton in the 5K Classic. I remember that waxing was tricky. So uh, it wasn't just excellent athletes, but you had a lot to, to say with it. Um, in 2006, NMU had four of their current skiers on the Olympic team. Chris Cook, Abby Larson, Lindsay Dillon, and Lindsay Williams. That's a massive accomplishment, of course. There's a competition called the College Cup. And that competition ranks college team performances at U.S. Nationals. Um, that started sometime in the early 2000s. NMU has won the women's six times and the men's four times in the overall combined three times, most recently in 2020. You've been awarded one of the USSA Coach of the Year Awards six times, as well as over 30 various Coach of the Year Awards. And I should say, when, when, a, when a coach or a person is constantly winning such, a, such an achievement award, the tendency is to try to give it to someone else. I think if it was based on merit, you would have won many more than that. As amazing as these accomplishments are, they don't capture why I am so very impressed with you. And this is, as, as awesome as that is, from this point on is what I really want to talk about because I have a ton of admiration and respect for you, as you know, and I, I'm trying to, as everyone should know, but it's, it's not so much for your accomplishments, but it's for what I'm talking about here. There are some, some other very successful NCAA collegiate ski programs out there. Historically, these ski programs use performances at the World Junior Championships as their way to evaluate skiers from around the world and as the basis 
for whom to recruit for their teams. The skier that attend these schools generally represented their country at World Juniors and did quite well. I have noticed over the many years that this has not at all been your way, Stan. Most all of the American skiers that you brought into the program were completely unheard of outside of the Midwest high school racing scene. You saw something in them that you knew that you were going to be able to work with and foster. Regarding this, you once said, if you have a culture of having a strong work ethic, knowing how to win and how to lose, and of being good at everything you decide you want to do, then that's the type of kid I wanted in my program. You coach these unheralded skiers with lots of potential to national excellence. To me, how you coached and inspired these skiers is your true legacy. Um, one, one great example of this is Pete Bordenberg, who came to NMU in the fall of 1991, never having had made a world junior team. In 1992, he made the U.S. Olympic team. In 1993, he won the NCAA championship. This is unheard of, but this kind of thing more or less became your calling card, at least in my eyes. So back to the conversation. What do you have to say about the passion and ability you have for finding young skiers with character and potential, bringing them into your team culture and then developing them to the point that they become top athletes? Um, you know, I just want to make a little comment on some of those other coach of the year awards, of course, some of, some of those, quite a few of those were also in cross country running. Just some of them. Just yeah, because, I know. Just, just, yeah, yeah. I just want people to know that they weren't all in skiing. But the vast majority were skiing. There were some running right. ones, but I thought it still right. reflects on you as a coach and you were very successful in any kind of coaching you've done, but especially skiing. Well, thank you. Um, I, yeah, it, it's almost embarrassing sometimes, you know, to, I, I don't feel like I, I need to stand up and get, get patted on the back, but, but anyways, thank you for mentioning that, Ian. Um, I understand what you're saying, but, and yeah. those accolades are huge. And you were also a U.S. ski team coach for a while, but, but to me, it's what I said at the end about, about picking these you know, maybe someone who was fifth in the Minnesota state championships or something like that. And next yeah. thing you know, they're, they're world beaters. And, and uh, Pete Bordenberg, as I said, is a great example that to me, that's your, that's kind of been your calling card and you're so incredibly good at that. And I would love to kind of um, hear more about your passion for that and, and how fun it and rewarding it's been for you. Yeah. It's, it's been really fun and rewarding. Actually, this is my first, you know, year in retirement. And the only thing I really miss are the athletes, you know, all the, all the other stuff, the fundraising and all that don't really miss that. But um, <clears throat> I, you know what, I, I really believe that um, each athlete that I've worked with has a infinite potential, you know, like the potential is there. It's, do they know that they have the potential and then do they know what needs to be done next? You know, so fitness is one thing, um, you know, what, what they come here with, you know, they're, I didn't raise these kids, right. I don't, I didn't, I'm not their parent, but when you get together with these kids, as much as you do, I used to tell them a lot that, Hey, I'm spending more time with, with you, athletes than I am with my own family 
I spend a lot of time on the road and put a lot of energy in me. That's what it takes to be a ski coach. It's like you get committed to the point where um, you, you have to remind them that I have to balance my life. You have to balance your life. And so if, like my old coach said, Johnny, work it, you know, like he told us when we we're young kids, if you're happy, you can do just about anything, you know? So how do you become happy? Well, you got to try to be good at everything you do. So that's where the academics comes in. And <clears throat> these kids are smart. They're very, very smart. Um, you know, in NCAA sports, I've read it many times that skiing always comes out number one, you know, and as far as academics. And so obviously their parents have done a good job. They, they come from good families and they have that work ethic in school. And now you just got to get them to believe that the same work ethic needs to exist and that find happiness through training. And it isn't just about training hard. It's about training smart, you know, training, training just right from year to year and from month to month. And you really, as a coach, you have to really have your thumb on the heartbeat of, of the team. You know, what, 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 what you hear, what you see, how they respond. Um, and as a coach, you know, every day when I'd walk into the, the ski room or whatever, you just got to stop, wait for a second and realize that you're here. What am I here for? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to teach. I want them to understand how the body works. I want them to understand how much potential they really have. And if I could get them to understand that they have this potential, to understand that it's important to do well in school, to show up at the team fundraising events, to, to like pitch in when we need to go to the work with the ski cats or any community event, you know that that's equally as important as their last great interval workout. And that instills kind of a pride in them. They're, they're proud to be part of the team. They're proud to be a teammate. Um, and communication, that was always number one in our rules. You know, the athletic director always wanted to, let me see your team rules, you know. You know take a shower, <laughs> show up, practice on time. Uh, but number one was always communication, right? So as young adults, you know, they need to learn that they can trust me and communicate with me, whether it's good or bad. You know, I, I would tell them, hey, I screwed up many times as a young athlete. You're going to screw up. But let's just talk about it. You know, don't be afraid to tell me about it. Don't don't feel that you have to hide anything. And let's just put our cards on the table, work with one another. I have weaknesses. You have weaknesses. But let's figure out what they are. So when I approached the uh, training plan, it would be based on each individual work, you know, and I'd sit down with each one of them and say, what do you think your strengths are? What do you think your weaknesses are? And we'd kind of work out together and agree and try to agree on what we figured would be the most important thing for them to focus on, whether it's strength or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, flexibility or whatever it might be in the physical part, but then you got the mental part of, of being able to visualize and be able to see yourself in first person or second person. And I really believe that an athlete that has a pretty good imagination and creativity, they can learn these things pretty fast. 
And we always have to remain humble, you know. And and I try to give them examples about, you know, Bill Cole, one of the most humble people I've ever met. Um, and all those top skiers that I've met over the years when I worked on the World Cup, very humble. And so then we'd work out a plan basically for each individual, but then integrate it with the team. So if we're doing intervals on one day, if it's a freshman, they might only do six of these intervals and an upperclassman might do seven or eight or nine um, just to try to base it on their level of fitness and not get them so tired physically that they can't, you know, re rebound or, or, or get some sort of payback from this training. Um, but I, I, I would never let them uh, down as far as um, I'm trying to say you can have a bad day. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, hmm. you know, and you're going to have bad days. Let's face it. This is a tough sport here. Put these poles in your hands, go find some hilly terrain and go as hard as you can up every hill. You know, it's, it's, there's a reason for why skiers have the highest field tubes, you know, and you gotta, you gotta be able to realize that, that there are going to be some workouts that are hard, but we're going to finish them. There's going to be some, you know, a lot of the freshmen that I had, the three-hour runs, where they'd come back and tell me years later, like, that was the hardest workout, was, you know, the three-hour, three-and-a-half, four-hour roller ski or whatever. Those were the hardest. So I started realizing early on that these kids didn't have this big aerobic buildup, you know, in their, in their, in their upbringing or their childhood. So I started liking to, well, I use all the time measurable things. So strength test, you know, basically how strong are you? Strength to weight ratio, 3K running time trial, you know, um, uphill running time trial, double pole time trial, uh, skate time trial. You know, look at somebody like, I'm going to use an example of Rosie Frankowski. She was, you know, kind of the eighth girl out of eight girls of her freshman year. But I saw in her like this determination. It didn't matter if she was the slowest girl on the team. She was at every workout. She worked hard as hard as anybody. And so everybody contributes on the team, right? And the faster women on the team would, would be impressed with Rosie, inspired by her. That even though they're beating her by minutes, she's out working just as hard as they are. And I think that's, that's what builds that team um, culture. You know, that everybody's there to work to the best of their ability. And look at, look at what happened. You know, look at Rosie made me a believer again, as did other athletes before. She made me a believer. You know, like I didn't think she would, she would almost win the instant blaze. It was a photo finish, you know, because she, she had a little tough time on the downhills at Soldier Hollow. But, you know, she, she, after every 5K loop, she'd have a 20-second lead and then lose it coming down her modes you know yeah. um but it you know it's, she just needed 23 seconds on top of that last climb right but it was a photo finish and here's a girl that walked onto my team was a straight a student uh she got the presidential award for you know all academics you know her classes were paid for room and board was paid for and she's so enthusiastic how could i not roll up my sleeves and do whatever i could for her like i would for anybody else right and then she goes on to be an Olympian 
I mean, that's a success story. That that's that's the the things that I reflect on and go, yep. There's that infinite potential. There's that human spirit. She had it right. So when I was recruiting, I would look for, I would kind of look for that. You know, look for the kids that wanted the challenge and wanted the like the hard work. Because man, if if you don't think roller skiing for two hours and running for three hours and then doing intervals and all that day in and, you know, day after day, month after month, year after year, it takes years to become a good skier. If you don't think that's fun, you pick the wrong sport because there's no way I could, I, I can't make it fun. You know, it's got to be that type of person that likes that personal challenge. Okay. You know, finishing the three hour run. I want to, I want to bring something up that I wasn't planning on bringing up, but you just said that. So it's perfect timing. The okay. first time I remember meeting you, was in the summer of 85 up at Marquette. You uh, you hosted a level 100 coaching school with Dick Taylor and Jim Young. Oh, yeah. And I was there. Uh, I was a young athlete, but I was there going to the coaching school. And I didn't know who you were. At, the, at Of course, I knew you were after a bit. But um, the first time I remember meeting you or noticing you, you were saying to an athlete, you picked a heck of a sport, a heck of a sport, for someone who doesn't want to work hard. And I assume it was <laughs> I assume it was someone in that exact situation where you're saying, you know, if you're gonna run and roller ski and whatnot for those hundreds and hundreds of hours a year, et cetera, you better like it because if you don't like working hard, then what are you doing here? You know, right. Pick something else. This is a hard sport, you know? Yeah. But yeah. that's the first time I remember meeting you and 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 getting a, a flavor of stenisms, you know, yeah. your your mantras. Pretty well, awesome. It, yeah, it's uh you know, it's, it's, it's not the same for everyone. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. training, you know, it's, <clears throat> you know, it's almost like there's too much information out there now, you know, um, it, the, the whole idea is if you think about ski racing, you know, you're linking together a bunch of intervals. And so yeah. if you look at a fissile allegation on a course, you know, like most of the uphills aren't going to be longer than four minutes. You know, you're not racing up a mountain for an hour. Right. You know, you're doing these intervals. So, so the, the training is pretty, it's, it's pretty common sense. And if you have a background in physiology, you realize like, okay, you got three systems I'm going to train. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to train the peripheral system. That's where I'm going to do my level one and two arms and legs, repeated work over and over endurance. I'm going to train the central system. So I'm going to make my heart work hard. Your, your heart's a muscle. So you're going to be doing some intervals and you better do them in progression. You know, you better progress. And then you got the neuromuscular system. You know, you can't say, well, I can only V1 on the right. Well, you know, you're going to be racing against people that can V1 on the right and the left. I hate to tell you. <laughs> so, so you got to do this neuromuscular training. And that's part of learning how to go fast is being able to control your movements. It isn't just about going hard. Anybody can go hard you know, and then slow down. It's like, can you go fast? Can you go fast across the snow? And this is what I try to instill in my athletes. Is these intervals don't have, you don't have to feel like it's just hard the whole time. Yeah, you're going to get your heart rate up and it takes like from rest, it takes about three minutes, you know, gradually putting on the, the effort, it takes three minutes to get your max heart rate, right? So if you go out there and you just blast out of the gate for the first, you know, a quarter of a kilometer, you're going to spike your lactic acid so high, you're not going to be able to move, right? 
So you gotta, you gotta do the interval training correctly. And you always want your first intervals to kind of like not to be your, not to go the furthest on the trail. So I, I like to give them examples of putting a flag out on the trail going, okay, that's, that's a kilometer and a half. And, you know, I want, you know, time it. And when you get there, the next interval, go a little further, go a little further, yeah. go a little further. And so that you don't blow the whole interval workout by, by messing up the first couple intervals. Right. So I, I always sat down before every workout and explained, this is why we're doing these level three intervals, you know, and this is why it has to be at level three, you know, not level four. And this is why we're doing level four. And this is why you want to finish these interval workouts. So I'm trying to give them an idea, you know, like all oh, these, these kids are super smart, but a lot of them are in finance or they're in their history major, they're pre-med. They're really not focused on human performance and understanding how the whole body works. So I kind of broke it up in those three areas that we're going to train in and it makes sense to them. And yeah, it's incredible, you know, because so many of these athletes have gone on to be coaches and to be, whether it's, you know, uh, high school coaches or junior club coaches or college coaches or national team coaches like Vordenberg and, uh, it, it just, it makes me feel like, well, we did something right. Hopefully, hopefully they've got this passion to want to share the information and, and to, to share the feeling of how, how it feels so good to actually put together a race that you could look back and say, I, I don't think I could have done any better. And, you know, I read Pierre Dolly's book. Unfortunately, it's in Norwegian, but if, if you ever get a chance to learn a region, you should read it. Bjorn Dolly's book, because, you know, here's a guy that trained a, over a thousand hours and he went back with his, with his team from the nineties and they were on a run and they were talking about how they think they did mostly everything right. But Bjorn Dolly thought one thing he could have done better was that he realized that, you know, in the beginning of the ski season, competitive ski season in the winter, he always felt the strongest. And then as the season went on, he felt it was harder and harder and harder to, to get that same feeling. Of course, you know, you got travel involved, you got a lot of racing involved. But what he said was that he wished he would have dry land a little bit more during the winter, like a little bit more running, a little bit more strength, maybe some plyometrics. Here he trained a thousand hours or, or whatever. And it was really kind of interesting to me. And that, kind of leads on to the, the whole question of like, do you really need to be on snow super early to have a successful ski season? Because I know that was one of your questions. And my answer is no. As long as you've learned through dryland training, the neuromuscular adaptations, your technique is, is good and you understand technique. It isn't like you're going to forget how to ski. So there were there were three on three occasions we went to U.S. Nationals where we had only like a week on snow and we had people on the podium and winning. How do you explain that? Well, it's the summer, summer and fall, most important time. You know, your body doesn't know um, if you're on snow or not. You can still work all those three systems. You can still do the training. It's just your head. Your head knows you're not on snow. So if you let that freak you out, you know, then you're kind of talking yourself into a bad situation. 
But yeah, we've had some amazing success with dry land training all the way up until the week before. <laughs> like you said, that year at U.S. Nationals, when the women won, Lindsay Weir, Lindsay DeLynn now won the 5K. And I remember opening up my wax box. I hadn't even looked at my kick wax box or blister box that year. Yeah, I just checked it real quick. But here I'm like, oh, we're on snow. You know, we got to race skis for nationals. And she goes out and wins. It's amazing. I think in a situation like that, uh, I was going to ask you, um, both the Lindsay's one and uh, I believe it was Cook, but also um, when Cal Bratrud won, yeah. also also in uh, in Houghton, most of these have been in Houghton, but it, also in Houghton, there's another aspect I think of, of coming to snow very late, right before your, you know, national championships. And that's the belief part, the mental part. Right. Um, I think it's important for a person to believe in what they're doing. And that they're prepared instead of saying, well, I'm going to suck for the next month and then I'm going to get my ski legs, you know? Right. Um, and obviously uh, when a lot of skiers hit the snow, there's a huge shock to their upper body because oftentimes their dry land training hasn't been, hasn't had enough specific strength in it to accommodate fast skiing early. So what do you have to say about that kind of preparation, both physical and mental, which enabled you to have five or at least four U.S. national champions um, on almost no snow training coming right out of their dry land? Well, in those years, um, what I did was it just continued to like, like we were on snow. I mean, I trained like we were on snow, but we, we added to, like you said, specific strength. So if you get on your roller skis and you do, do diagonal arms and I'd measure the, the hill and it would be about a, you know, almost a K long gradual, you know, an uphill. So we, we end up, you know, we started in the fall with doing like eight K's worth of arms only just diagonal arms, you know, through some double pulling in there too, but I, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but boy, when you're just doing one arm at a time, it's, it's a unique type of strength, unique to cross country skiing. And we ended up doing like 20, 22 kilometers of arms only by by the end of November when I knew we weren't going to be on snow so it wasn't going to we weren't going to give ourselves any excuses to say oh my arms are weak I haven't been on snow and I remember uh one of the cook brothers might have been Brian or Tim after that workout got in the van and he, and when he went to drink out of his water bottle he started shaking so bad because the water bottle was hard for him to control mm -hmm. because he'd used he's toasted his arms so bad you know and doing that but you know, we, we all kind of chuckled at that because they're saying, look at Tim, he can't drink water. You know, it was squirting all over his face because his hands were shaking. <laughs> well, you know, that, that was kind of an overload for Tim, right? I mean, I made sure that he, he didn't have to do that much specific strength the next time, right? I, I could kind of see like, oh, he's a tough kid. Those cooks are tough. But, um, you know, you're, you just got to be prepared for it. You, know, you got to look at okay, what is it my body's going to be required to do? I got to go up hills as hard as I can, every hill, and I got to recover on the downhills. Well, you got to figure out workouts to simulate that. And uh, that's exactly what we did. And, you know, some of our, our moose hood workouts are, were tough. So you do 45 seconds of not full on bounding, but it's like a light bound, like a moose hoof. 45 on, 15 seconds off. 45 on, 15 off. You do four of those. There's a set. Hmm. 
and then you do a three to four to five sets. And that's simulating cross-country skiing quite a bit because right. most of the hills you get down pretty quick, right? Um, so you get good at moose hose and, uh, you know, that's kind of a lactate tolerance workout, but the whole package is, it's, it's hard. Um, I, I don't recommend, yeah, go in ahead. Some cases, the belief also comes from those workouts. So, you know, oh, yeah. it's easy for a skier to not have faith in his or herself going into big races like that with little on snow, but it's easy to believe when you've done some of these workouts that prepare you so well. And they've also heard stories about, you know, like when Kyle won his first national championship, he had hardly been on snow at all, but there have been three other NMU athletes that have won U.S. senior national championships, also having hardly been on snow, even and on the same site. So you could say, hey, at least two of them were on the same site. So you could say, hey, you're ready. And you do these right. things and, and I believe in it because you're ready. Right. And it's yeah. got a lot of power between your ears, you know? Yeah. And, you know, when you when you part of some of those workouts are really hard, but I think that's the purpose of those sometimes too, is just the mental part is that, man, I did it. I lived through it, you know, got to be careful the next few days, but you're fine. Yeah. And it builds confidence. Is, I think those workouts improve the mental part. Oh yeah. That's you know what, what I'm agreeing. Mean? Agree, yeah, I'm ready to roll here because yeah. I just did all this stuff. So now I can believe in myself. Whereas if yeah. a person been, you know, sitting around eating candy, watching TV, there's no reason for them to believe in anything, you know? Right. Honestly. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And, yeah. and the neuromuscular part, you know, when we got uh, a grant to buy a roller ski treadmill, that's, that's when I was really able to get athletes to understand, you know, because you can videotape them from the front, from the back, from the side. And that's when we could really start playing around with stride length, stride rate, for example. Um, uh, you know, in classic, you know, you have the pole phase and a lot of people miss that pole phase. They're too busy with the high tempo and they're not getting the pole on the ground and using it to keep the gliding leg gliding just another couple of inches. And so I would set it up so that they'd be at the same speed, you know, in the same grade and count the number of repetitions. Cause every time you're, you're, you're moving and making a repetition, you're using ATPs, you're using energy. So if they're, if they're going with 60 repetitions in a minute and I can get it down to 50 at the same speed and make it feel comfortable and natural. And that that's from a study that um, Ken Rundell did. Remember Ken Rundell? Yep. It's been a long from, time in his labs. Over yeah. There. Like in 1980, right around there. And he noticed that the, some of the, the slower skiers had the same stride rate as the faster skiers, but the faster skiers had a, more of a stride length, had a longer stride length. So what was causing that? And what was causing that was just that um, the slower skiers were slamming their foot and their hand back at the same time, you know, in diagonal stride. And they weren't getting the pole in the ground and then using the pole right away and staying forward to keep the knee gliding just, to, just three or four inches further on every stride. Well, that adds up. And in skating, you know, it's like where, where you plant the pole, you have this big, long pole and where you plant the pole is critical because that's, that's going to determine if you can put pressure on it or not. If you plant the pole too far in front of your foot, you can't put pressure on it. You're going to push yourself backwards. Right. And so skating is all about pressure about working with the upper body and the lower body together. 
and weight shift. And when they can see that, that, that's amazing how fast you can learn when you can see it. So I use the roller skate treadmill a lot for technique and, and then start increasing the speed and seeing if they keep the stride length, right? So anybody can turn up the, the RPMs and crank along, but you're not going to last long. And so then you got to pay attention to body position and pressure. And then you can ride your ski. As soon as, you know, the knee starts moving back, you know, you're losing, you get your body weight back, your ski stops. And the difference between roller skis and snow skis, of course, as you know, is roller skis don't have camber. The camber doesn't make a difference. So when we get on snow, when you push down on the ski in the right place, the ski will accelerate. And so then I explain that to the athletes. So as soon as we get on snow, I remind them of it, you know, how important it is to keep the pressure on the skis. Um, so having tools like that has it's been phenomenal. And having uh, working at the university and with the sports science department, I have to say I had a, an instructor that was incredible. And anybody that's ever had him, We'll say the same thing, Dr. Phil Watts. And he had some joint research going on with H.C. Uh, Holmberg over in Sweden. And so Holmberg came here to visit Phil and check out the lab and, and to work on some uh, projects that he had. And then to, to get that experience to talk to these guys and to have somebody like Phil Watts to, to bounce ideas off of. Sometimes he would just look at me like I had four eyes, you know, like, are you nuts? You know, but then he would say, well, let's, let me look into this. And then we'd modify it, you know, and, and, you know, I, I mean, just, yeah, it, it's amazing what can be accomplished. And if the athlete really wants to do it, they can do it. And that, that's what I felt my job was more yeah. of a teacher really. Yeah. You did one heck of a masterful job at that, and uh, and it shows in your results. But that's not the whole story. Like I was saying, I want to I want to tell you something. Um, Lindsay Williams, uh, she won NCAA's in two thousand seven, as well as the two thousand five U.S. National Championship sprint title, and was on the way. As uh, she was on the two thousand six Olympic team as well. She said, "Stan would always say you are always in control of two things: your attitude and your effort." That has stuck with me every day in everything that I do. She told me that uh, yesterday. How does it make you feel that this exceptional athlete with a very successful post-skiing career, ski racing career, says many years later that she still thinks about and benefits from your lessons every day? Well, it makes me feel, of course, very good. You know, it makes me, makes me proud. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of all the athletes that I've worked with, you know, these the Nordic community is amazing. And a lot of these athletes have gone on to give back to skiing in, in some incredible ways. You know, I had a, well, you know, they've gone on to be successful in their professional lives and that they're giving back. Um, there's a young man in town here, John Momarts. He was on my team yeah. back when it was a club team. And he's the one that started the Nokeman on ski race and then, and then expanded it to the Nokeman on, um, uh, ski association or the kind of the Cayman on uh, what would he, what what do they call it? it? It's a whole trail network. Yeah. And then they build mountain bike trails. And I had another uh, athletes who started the Order Shore mountain bike race. And in these events, they bring people to town mm-hmm. uh, 
thousands of people do the, the Ordershore mountain bike race. So Scott Tuma started that. And, and I've had athletes go home to other areas in the country and become coaches, you know, um, and I hear from them and it, it's an extended family and I, I couldn't be more proud of that's what really what I'm proud of. Yeah. You know, that, that they've, they've kind of wanted to do this as adults. That's kind of what I'm getting at. I think that's your legacy. You know, the, the results and the accolades are fantastic. They're incredible. But to me, your legacy is there are literally, there are a ton of really important people that contribute to the industry and to the lifeblood of cross country skiing in the United States that have got that bug from you, the passion, the vision, and, uh, and they, they have the enthusiasm and um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it comes from you and it's powerful. Sten, let, let me go back to that quote. You were always in control of two things, your attitude and your effort. That's something you say, you've said many, many times over the years. It's pretty self-explanatory, but I'd love to hear it come from the horse's mouth. Can you elaborate on that? You are always in control of two things, your attitude and your effort. Well, yeah, I can. Um, part of that came from uh, the fact that this sport that we're in, cross-country skiing, has numerous uncontrollable variables. You know, what, what can you do about it? You know, like, what can you do? You know, you and I talked a little bit about the rainy day and the puddles and the ice. You know, what can you do? You can't change it. You know, so obviously you were a young man back then and you, your attitude was, I'm going to find the best skis that work the best on this icy day and I'm going to go out and kick some butt, right? I mean, what, you know, so I told the athletes, like, you can't come back from inspecting the course and say, well, they really screwed up on setting the tracks. You know, they, they messed this up. Mess. I'm like, what are you going to do? You can't fix that. Why don't you tell yourself, I'm going to be the best skier today and really with really weird, crappy tracks, you know? And what are you going to do when it goes from being a blue extra day and all of a sudden you need red cluster? Are you going to give up? Or are you going to say to yourself, no, I'm going to be the best skier no matter what happens out there. You know, I'm going to figure out a way to, to ski around this course. You know, we need, we need more people to think like Bill Cope did. You know, he, he's really the guy that kind of inspired me. Like he figured it out, you know, he figured it out. He figured out marathon skating, you know, and also they tried to put these berms up for the world championships when he was there. When would that have been? Um, 80, when would that have been? 82? Uh, yeah, but um. I Okay, so like for marathon skating. Yeah, I guess that was then. Yeah. 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 And so the Norwegians were being stubborn, like they always are, and they wanted to, they didn't want anybody skating on, yeah. on their trails. But you know, they built these berms up on either side of the track. And all well, the flags too. People get their skis yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Bill was smart enough to like innovative enough to go like, huh, well, how can I make this work to my advantage? So he put his left foot in the right track. And that berm was right in the perfect place to push off of. Right. <laughs> right. So I learned from guys like that, you know, and, and you learn from examples like that if you pay attention. Um, and it's, it's, it's easy just to say, oh, well, you know, it started, it started snowing on me and, you know, like I couldn't, I couldn't ski because it just didn't have the right wax. Well, that if that's your attitude, you're not going to put in much of an effort. Okay. I got something to say on that. Um, 
when you're saying that, you're not just saying that and hoping people listen. You also give them the tools. So, for example, when you're talking about when things go wrong or the conditions are bad, you're in control of two things, your attitude and your effort. What one, one, one scenario where things go wrong is in a classic ski race and the, the conditions change or somehow you're, you're right. not getting kicked. Your NNU teams have had very strong upper bodies over the years. I remember the first time I noticed that I was at Mount Bachelor in the summer camp. And in June, I was at Mount Bachelor and I saw Melissa Orem, Aubrey Smith, and one of the other skiers, they were double pulling up to the lodge. And if anyone's ever been to Mount Bachelor, you know what I'm talking about. That's a long, yeah, yeah. long hill with a yeah. lot of kind of stairs going up yeah. and it's exhausting. And they were double pulling all that in that slow, slow summer snow and with a big smile on their face and they're strong as heck. And if I, if I combine that, that upper body, super strong training and, and training result that you gave them with that attitude, you're, you're also, I mean, you can control your attitude and your effort and that's exactly what you were doing. So you're preparing them for those days where, yeah, you're a little, your wax a little slick, no big deal. Don't pull. Right. You know? um, right. So you prepared them to, for success as compared to just saying, Hey, suck it up. You know? Right. Right. That's well, yeah, I, I, I couldn't say just suck it up to them if I knew their arms were toothpicks, you know? Exactly. I mean, here's a good example for you. Just a quick story. I won't keep it too much longer, but. Oh, no, no. The longer the, longer the yeah. better. This is fantastic. So Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Compton, now Caitlin Gregg, um, she came on the team um, and had had little experience with cross-country ski racing, but she was actually in Alpine before that. And she ran like the wind. I mean, she was the first woman I had qualified for NCAA running nationals in 99 and so really fit but toothpicks for arms right so we're doing this uh, specific strength workout up a hill is about a almost a K-long and Caitlin came over and I was standing there with um, my assistant coach then was Jenny Ryan who she coached me for 10 years did a super job um, and uh Caitlin came over and she's kind of teary-eyed and she said, I think my roller skis are really, really slow. And I said, really? Well, well, they're the same as everybody else's, you know. I looked at him, spun the wheel, and then Lindsay Weir, Lindsay Dillon, I can't remember, uh, Lindsay, either Weir or Williams were coming down the hill and I stopped her and I switched skis. You know, I said, here, use Lindsay's skis because Lindsay had been blown by her, you know. And I said, well, let's go down there, you know, at the start line and start again. And so I like these measurable things. So I'd measure every hundred meters up the hill. Hmm. And when I saw a freshman that was starting to bog down, because it doesn't do any good to do strength work out in a real slow movement, right? I mean, that's no good. Right. And so you want to have the same speed on your poles as you would if you're racing. You know, you want to be quick through the through the power phase. So so Caitlin went, couldn't hang with her more than about 10 poles and whoop, up Lindsay went and she, she came back over to me and I said, well, you know, that was the one thing I told her over the summer that was super important to do was specific strength and arm work. But, you know, as human beings, we like to do what we're good at. We don't like to do what we're not good at. Right. And so she's very good at running. So she had consequently run a lot that summer and to her credit, she did try to roller ski, but she's living with her family in, in 
New York City. And so there really wasn't a lot of opportunities for it. So I said, well, Caitlin, I get it, you know, but just go to the 300 meter mark. You know, you, you just go to 300 meters and keep that speed going on your pole phase, you know. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's from Costal, Rob Costal from swimming. You know, he discovered years ago that to do strength work for swimmers, they had to pull on this paddle mm-hmm. at the same speed or faster, right? To, to ingrain, to get the kind of strength you want. And eventually, you know, she is going to 300 meters pretty fast, keeping up and then to 350, then to 400. So incrementally increasing the workload. And well, it worked, you know, and it doesn't take that long. I have to say, it doesn't take that long to develop the strength. So in the research that I've read, it takes about eight to 10 weeks to reach 90% of your potential strength. And that's with three days a week, you know, and hitting it pretty hard, but it doesn't take that long. When you think about training for skiing, you know, the years and years and years, we're building all the endurance and the central capacity, but strength, you can get strong fairly quick. And I really always felt that on the women's side, that that's where we made the biggest improvements was in strength, getting them strong. I mean, Rosie Frankowski, <laughs> she did 54 dips in a minute and they were real dips. They weren't like neck bobs, you know, yeah. they were elbow down to 90 and back up because when she was a freshman, you know, I sat her down and I said, Rosie, we got to really work. We got, you know, she thought I was going to cut her. I wasn't going to cut her, but I was kind of laying it out for her that, listen, you got to improve on these things. What things? Well, I pulled out the strength sheet, you know, and I pulled out the running time trial. And I said, you just, we just got to work on the fitness aspect. You got everything else, you know, the technique. Okay. We got to work on that, but we'll work on that through getting fitness. And she had done like 11 or 12 dips. And I said, okay, come on. You know, you can do a lot more than that. Here are the girls like Melissa Orm and Aubrey Smith. They, they worked up to like 30, 32. She came back and did 54 in the first minute. And on the second minute was like at 43 or 44. Right. So they do dips for a minute. They rest for a minute. I was like, "Woo! now you got some strength to weight ratio. Right. And wow, did her skiing take off, you know, just like that. Boom. And that's like with anything, you know, if you got a job, if you got a job to do, you, you, you just want to know that you're making progress in this job. You want to know that you're doing better. Absolutely. And that's part, that's part of it, you know. So you have an enthusiasm and a passion for coaching and for cross-country skiing, which is rare. Uh, I want to I talk about that for a second with you. Chris Cook, who also won NCAAs, who was also U.S. national champion and was also a 2006 Olympian, said, I think Sten's passion for the team for training and sport is infectious. This passion combined with the athlete's desire to win created a team atmosphere where the athletes flourished. Additionally, the historical success that Sten had gave athletes the belief that if we did the work, we would be champions. We worked so hard that we thought that surely no one else could possibly be working as hard as we were. How he did that for so many years without losing the passion for a single day is unreal. What do you have to say about that? And where does the passion come from? Well, it's awful nice of Chris. Got a lot of respect for that guy. 
Um, I always have. I, I think the passion comes from helping them realize their potential and from my own mistakes. You know, like, like I look, reflect back and go, well, I really screwed that up and I screwed that up. And I'm not going to let them screw that up, you know? <laughs> and, and I tried to back it up with, with science and facts. And I tried to back it up with showing them the progress they're making, you know, in strength and endurance and in technique, because you can stay motivated if you know you're working down the right path. You can, that can keep you motivated, you know? And if you're motivated and you're happy, you can do anything. And I, I guess it came, that passion came from, I wanted them to be able to realize their potential. And that made me happy as a person. Um, it's, I, guess, I guess that's where it came from. It made, it made me proud. You know, we're together so much. You, you yeah. become like this little family. You support one another, you help one another, um, you push one another. And uh, there's just a sense of making you feel, you feel good about it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Just to build on that, just a, just a quote, because I think you'd love hearing it. Pete Vordenberg, Pete Vordenberg, uh, also Olympian, national champion, uh, NCAA champion, and U.S. national team coach, he said, that he described you as having a bottomless will and uncompromising energy and enthusiasm. I think that's a great description of you, uh, this Thank aspect you. of you. That's pretty cool. So um, Ian Torchia emailed me right, right when we started this uh, interview. So I might be a little bit um, out of uh, sorts here, but he said that you snuck what is now his favorite quote into the bottom of his training plan email in his sophomore year. And he immediately loved it and the idea it represented. And then he heard that over and over from you. And the quote is, doing everything that you do to the best of your ability leads to success in all aspects of your life. That's right. And, and uh, he said that's his favorite quote. And he, he listens, he reads it and thinks about it all the time still many years later. And um, the work, the hard work ethic that you all built on the NMU ski team, you you said that would lead to great things in their lives outside of skiing. And that's something that he really was grateful for about your coaching and the messages that you constantly gave out. There were such messages that were so empowering and not just skiing, but for life. And that's something I wanted to say is that it seems to me, yeah, you're, you are developing and preparing people for championship skiing, but the reality is for championship lives. That's right. That's right. And that I can many times tell them, you know, fortunately, I was able to coach long enough to see what it what a lot of these athletes had accomplished and become. And I started realizing then that, you know, they got to understand that they're in school. They got their studies and they got their training. But once they're out of school, it doesn't get easier. You know, I mean, life doesn't get any easier. And I wanted them to be happy. I wanted them to, to feel success. And I would always tell them that, man, this is all you got to think about now is your studies and your skiing. It's not a big deal. Because when you get into the competitive work world, you know, it's going to be as tough as this, or way tougher, it could be way tougher. So this is part of preparing you, you know, 
be yeah. a good a good winner be be a, the same person when you have a bad day you know we had a 20 minute rule so you had 20 minutes if you had a really shitty day the last thing you want to do is is have some athlete come back and complain about it and and whine about it and be all sour about it forever right so i always told them like you have 20 minutes yeah, like if you knew you really blew it somehow you can go out there in the woods you can you can you can kick a tree do whatever it takes but after 20 minutes we're moving on like we're moving on to the next race we're moving on to the next day and then if on Monday, come Monday when we get home, if you really want to sit down and go over it with me constructively, what you think the mistakes were, I'm the first person that wants to help you figure that out. But control yourself. You know, you got 20 minutes because you're going to come back to a team and the team is, is, is important that everybody, you know, has an opportunity to be themselves and to you know, not have to worry about what they say because you're being a sour puss. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So the 20-minute rule worked pretty good. Hey, Stim. Yeah. I asked a number of your past athletes for some quote-unquote Stenisms. I made that word up. I'm sure it's existed because they're so prominent out there. Um, it's a word that has uh, become a word due to your awesome habit of saying profound and motivating mantras to your athletes over the years. There's one that came back but from every single athlete. And so I'd like you to elaborate on this because it's so powerful and empowering. First you form an attitude and then it forms you. Um, well, yeah. Um, you know, if you have an attitude that you can ski in any kind of conditions, that's not going to affect you. You know, if your attitude is that I'm ready, I'm strong, I'm going to try to find as much speed as I can on the course. That's what you focus on, you know, and, and it'll, you know, but if your attitude is like, Oh, this really sucks. The trail's bad. You know, weather's bad. That's your attitude. That's going to be you, you know, that's going to be you out there. So it, there's going to be challenges in the sport. That's what I love about it. You know, it's never the same. Even if you're on the same course, it could be different conditions on that course. You can't control the weather. You can't control your competitors that are competing, you're competing against, you just control yourself. And if your attitude is, is good, positive, constructive, you're going to be fine. But for me, you form an attitude. That's a decision. You decide yeah. to be positive. You decide to right. say, I can do this. You decide to work hard and then it forms you. It's a fact you actually become what you think. Right. You become your attitude. You you reflect your attitude. Your attitude sets you in a direction, and then you become that if right. you pursue that. And you know, attitudes become habits, which become who you are. And, right. and so that's so empowering and so true. And it's, it has nothing to do with skiing. It's got to do with every single aspect of life. That's right. You got it. And it, uh, here's here's another thing. You know, sports psychologists. You know. They have a phrase is, you know, if you're focused or you're not focused. So focus could be, I try to tell the athletes, like when you're racing, don't think about anything other than right where you're at. So if, if, if you look down the trail 20 meters and you see a corner coming up, you got to tell yourself, I'm going to be, have the best tuck and I'm going to go around this corner better than anybody. After you do that, you, 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 that's done. It's history. You can't do it again. 
you can tell yourself, well, I don't think anybody went down that hill around that corner better than I did. Then you look up and you see, you know, like a big pine tree. I'm going to be the fastest guy up this hill to that pine tree. Go by the pine tree. Damn, I went through that pretty fast. You know, I don't think I could have gone by there any faster. So it's like this mental focus, not thinking about the outcome, but at the task, where you are right now. Because if you're out there going, oh, you know, I'm getting tired. Boy, I'm getting thirsty. Well, I, oh, I got a Coke in my backpack. I can't wait to drink a nice cold soda. You know, that's mental boredom. You're done, right? So how do you develop that thought process? You know, and let's, let's, you know, I want to mention Bill Coke again. I saw that guy do some amazing things in races that I just couldn't believe it. How did he do that? There was this hill in Mount St. Anne where you're flying down it and then it dropped off. There's like this bump that dropped off and it had a sharp left-hand turn. And he passed me. Like I was in a tuck. And I think his brother Fritz is right in front of me. And we're going down this hill and he comes by on the left and he pre-jumps this thing. And by the time I went over the bump, he was already going around the corner. I mean, like he was so focused on that. He knew exactly where to make speed on that. And that's when I started thinking back then, I started thinking, wow, that guy is in the moment, you know, because I was, I, you know, I was in the air trying to get my balance back while he was already around the corner because I hadn't thought ahead. I hadn't thought I hadn't focused right there. I was thinking too much about the big climb after the corner. So, so much of racing is, is once you're, you know, what separates the skiers once you're physiologically as fit as everybody else and you have the same skis, you know, like, what, what, what is it that separates them? You know, how can Claybow make those moves he makes, you know, it's being in the moment and it's feeling actually like the bottom of your feet. They got to have sensors, you know, they got to, you have to feel the speed. You, you can't just go hard, you know, you got to feel the speed and go fast across the snow. And to do that, you got to be super focused. You can't be thinking about, don't worry about the outcome. You know, like I made that mistake many, many times. Like, oh, I got to make this team or that team. Well, then you're forgetting the whole process of being the best person up that little herringbone hill, being the best around this corner. So developing that focus I talked a lot about that to the kids about being in the moment and taking advantage of it. This is, I think, the exact same thing, but with a different, from a different angle. But um, I'm curious to see what you think of this. Rick Capala used to talk about being a, being like a dog when you're out racing. Be like a dog. What he means is the dog doesn't think about the next hill. The dog oh, doesn't yeah. think about the finish line or the results. Right. The dog's thinking about where he is right then and there, and that's right. it. You know, navigating right. a, a, a tree falling or a right. you know, this and that, jumping over a, a puddle or whatever. They're, they're in the exact moment and they're not thinking about two seconds ahead. They're, they're doing what they're doing in that moment. And it's a very simplistic uh, analogy, but I think it works very well. Oh, I agree 100 percent. And I've used that myself like a sled dog, yeah. you know, like a, like those guys that are uh, standing on the sled and are waiting to start the race. They have this. UP 200 sled dog race. They got to stand on the brake and the dogs are like, you know, they're, they're leaning into the harnesses and they want to go, you know? So I know when I have athletes ready and I put the bib on them, 
And that's, you know, and, and they look like a sled dog, like get, I want to get to the start, you know, rather than, rather than being anxious about the outcome. Yeah. You know, like, I, like that has, has really killed a lot of kids racing careers, like worried about making teams worried about, I had this kid from Alaska, his very first day in the ski room, putting his ski boots away and his roller skis. He he looked at me as a freshman and he seriously said this, how am I going to make the junior world team? And I said, well, uh, you got a herringbone up the hills faster than anybody else. You got to tuck better than anybody else. You got to stride up the hills better than anybody else. You just got to get around the course. There's no, what, what are you thinking about that for? You know, let's work on your, let's work on your, the process, you know, the task at hand, you know, like of how to ski, not, not how to make a team, you know, and I, I had to work with him to kind of like get the light bulb screwed in the right yeah. way. You know, and he's very talented. Once he figured it out, like stop thinking about that stuff because that just freezes you up. That, that doesn't do any good. No, it, I like that Kapala has got some good quotes, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, also, don't ever let him take a bite out of your apple because, the, you know what? He took a bite out of my apple and thanks this huge apple, the half of it was gone. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, here's something else I want to talk with you about. But um, so I'm thankful to say that my daughter Pearl is an NMU Wildcat. She started attending the school a year ago. Shortly thereafter, she started sending us videos from morning runs, generally in sub-zero Fahrenheit temperatures and with a breeze coming off the lake showing a frost-covered, smiling face, enjoying the early morning sunrise off Lake Superior. She then turned to the camera with a big frosty smile and say, it's a great day to be a wildcat. Of course, this is something you say regularly, and the athletes have picked up, picked it up and ran with it. Pearl certainly has. What does it mean to be a wildcat? Well, you know, that's, that's a lot of... Lot of uh... Locals will say that it's a great day to be a wildcat, right? At hockey games or whatever. And it's just kind of a local saying. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, we're kind of for years have been the underdog, you know, we're not, we're not the cool place, you know, we're not, you don't need to worry about it. your sunglasses, <laughs> you know, at practice, you know, you know, no, I mean, you know, put it this way what do you want? You know, we got snow, tons of snow. We got good stable conditions. We don't have big, huge malls. We don't have this. We don't have that. We don't have a lot of sun. We don't have big, beautiful, tall mountains, but we got snow to ski on and we got hills long enough to challenge you. So get out there and do the training. It is a great day to be a wildcat. Um, That's just started years ago and just kind of kept going, you know? I I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think quite often you'd say that when it was uh, a workout and it was, let's say, rainy and windy or something, oh, like yeah. that weather, and you kind of get out of the van, look around, look at your athletes and then say real loud, yeah, a great day to be a wildcat. And that would be a message to them to snap out of it, be positive. Yeah. Don't worry exactly. about the stupid weather, you know, yeah. and have a yeah. great day, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my attitude, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I get out there and it's like, well, we're here. Let's get this stuff done. You know, it's a great day to be a wildcat. Let's get out here and do it. You know, let everybody else sit at home and eat bonbons and 
and watch Netflix. You know, we're going to get out. We're going to get after it. And you know what? Some of those workouts are the workouts that I hear back from athletes. Like when we're on a roller ski workout or yeah, we're on a roller ski workout from Ishpeming to Marquette and it was 47 miles and it started snowing. <laughs> and then it started snowing so much that I could see the tracks on the road, you know, and I'm driving a van up ahead making sure that everybody's safe and giving them water or whatever. And I, I told the kids that we're about halfway through. I said, hey, you know, if you don't feel like this is safe, you know, you can jump. Nobody jumped in the van. They're all like, nope, we're going to finish it. And it took quite a bit longer than we had expected. But, you know, it, it was it was kind of a team builder. It was a confidence builder. You know, here we are. People are driving by and their cars looking at like, are you guys out of your minds? You know, but it was cool. That was fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. It builds character. So you've had tremendous success both in terms of accolades and measurable stuff, but also like we've been talking about in, in changing people and, and reinforcing proper values and perspective on things. But you have said one of the things that you're most proud of is the academic success of your athletes. They've consistently had academic success at NMU compared to other sports, et cetera. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, I'm very proud of that. Uh, that was easy you know, for a lot of these athletes, um, you know, and Adam Martin, who just won the race at nationals, you know, I got a, a text from him. It was really fun to read, you know, uh, Adam was also the elite 98 or 89, or I can't make every year it changes, but in the, in the NCAA, the outstanding student, whether it's a male or female with the most credits, you know, he won that and that, that had never happened at NMU before. So, extremely proud of that and the fact that Adam his text said that ever since he visited our ski room his um his last year in high school he came to look at northern and in the ski room see I, I like pictures and so I have pictures of the athletes that up on the wall and they're not all just of the winners but you know big pictures of Pete Vordenberg and Kyle Bratrud and all the people have won NCAAs and U.S. national champions. I think it's pretty cool because you walk in and you can kind of get a feel of the history, yeah. you know, and you see NCAA All-American plaques all the way back to the 70s, you know. And Adam said ever since he walked in the ski room, like, he wanted to be a national champion. And his dream had come true last week, and uh, that was really a fun text to get. But it's inspiring, you know, it, you know, picture speaks a thousand words. Isn't that a saying here in the U.S.? And picture speaks a thousand words, and you can just see it in the kids when they come in. Like, I want to get on the wall. You know, I want to be on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Some it's people walk into cool. a burger or a pizza place, and they got a picture on the wall of a person who ate the biggest burger. You know, kind of a thing. And, <laughs> and NMU Wildcats walk into the the wax room, and they say, "Okay, I want to get on that wall and win a national championship." That's a, yeah. an awesome culture that you've created. Yeah, thank you. So tell me about another experience that we haven't talked about that you have had uh, that was maybe a high point in your coaching career in one way or another. Oh, another another experience was a high point. Yeah, I mean, um, you're full of great stories. I'd love to give you an opportunity. Well, you know, you know part, of, part of it, when I started this coaching job, you know, I just couldn't believe, like, I didn't have... A, much I didn't have a scholarship budget really and 
I mean, we're, my budget was so small, you know, that it was kind of ridiculous. And when I saw like how hard, you know, how hard these kids were willing to, to, to train and to work and how committed they were and what good students they were, man, I was bound and determined. Like I could have easily quit and gone on to be a teacher, but I, I, it just irritated me. You know, it just irritated me that, you know, we didn't have a locker room. We didn't have this. We didn't have that, you know. So I told the athletes, like, we're going to be the best team on campus. We're going to we're going to we're going to prove to them. We're, I'm going to make the president and the, and the university of the university and the athletic director. I'm going to make them notice us. They're going to have to notice us. We're going to just kick butt. You know, we're going to do the work. We're going to be good students. I'm going to try to do the best job I can. And someday we'll get scholarships. We did. And that was very satisfying. And I'm still working on the locker room, even though it hasn't happened yet. But we do have a nice ski room. We got the roller ski treadmill. It isn't about having things. It's just about getting these kids what they need and deserve. And that has happened. And you know, having alumni come in and create these events in town, you know, like that the events that bring a lot of money to town, like the Game on Ski Festival and the Order Shore, you know, having that happen now has made the university realize that, hey, this has kind of got an economic impact on the community. And all these mountain bike trails that have been built because of the Order Shore. Now we get thousands of people over the summer that are actually coming here from all over the Midwest to mountain bike, you know, and there's a little cabin village that's built now at the trailhead where people can come and stay in a lodge and cabins and campground. And I mean, all of this has happened in the last 20 years. Yeah. It's, it just, it makes me proud that our, a lot of our athletes have been involved in that. It makes me feel good about establishing skiing here. Like, hockey is established and like football is established. And, you know, I had to do a lot of, I got thrown out of a lot of meetings <laughs> in, the early, in the early days. Uh, Rick Conley put up with me and gave me an opportunity and I wanted to uh, pay him back by creating a successful program. You I sure gave did. It back. You sure Thank did. You. Hey, uh, one more coaching question. It seems to me that a yeah. common mistake that coaches and parents make trying to or is trying to instill will or desire into a child i think that team culture and situations created in training and racing can encourage desire but otherwise it has to come from within can you please talk about the importance of this most basic element desire well you know uh I guess desire on an individual basis comes from really what that kid wants as a youngster, you know, what, what they enjoy. They enjoy challenges if, if they enjoy the sport, but on a team, I really think um, it's important to remember that everybody, whether you're the solo skier on the team, the fastest skier on the team, everybody has a, uh, a function on that team is a contributing member of the team and is important to the team. Um, I've had some athletes that were not the fastest athletes, but they were the hardest workers. They contributed. I've had some athletes that were 
very, very creative and, and painted things like pictures and murals and put them in, you know, hung them on the walls and the skier. They contributed. I've had athletes that have contributed being the best volunteers, you know, and they feel part, they get inspired because they are important to the team in one way or another. They're not the fastest skier maybe, but that doesn't matter. And they're hard, as hard a worker as the fastest skier, maybe even a harder worker. And I, I really think that's important to build a team culture. And it's inspiring for somebody to feel they're part of something. You know, and that's why, you know, the Bill Coke Youth Ski Leagues are super, super important. We started the uh, Ski Cat League here years ago. We got quite a few kids involved in that. And that, that's the, the emphasis of that. That whole, the reason for that is introducing into the sport, but also they also feel part of something. Um, I, I guess that's the best answer I could come up with, you know. Right. And yeah, I, I hope so. I hope it makes yeah. sense. Okay. Let's talk about Marquette. Yeah. Nobody performs the way that you have without getting attractive job offers from the competition. I'm sure that you have received offers from programs with bigger budgets and some other kinds of perks. Why did you stay at NMU and in Marquette all these years? Well, part of it was to prove those administrators wrong, you know, <laughs> and, and to keep building up the program. And yeah, I did, I did, I did look at a couple other. Uh, job opportunities when they did when they did arise. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I looked. Um, Marquette was uh, affordable, um, and then plus, you know, it takes me it takes our team fifteen minutes to get from campus to ski. I mean, I can run out my door through woods. I can mountain bike on single track trails. I can ski right here. I can fish right here. I can hunt right here. I can do all the things that I love to do. And it, it's, you know, there's 20,000 people, 22,000 people in Marquette. And then you add the university of about 8,000, 9,000 students. So it's big enough. Um, I just love the area. You know, I, I just really love the area. And um, yeah, you know, there are some days where we're, um, you know, you wonder if it's ever going to stop snowing, but it does eventually, you know, it, I just love it here, you know? Home. It, yeah. It's, it's home. It's home. Yeah. And the community is, I got to say as much of a family for you as anyone could ever have, I think, because they love you and yeah. respect you and appreciate you so much. And you've done so much for the community. You know, it's a two-way street. I, that's, that's what also makes a home, you know, yeah. not just, not just mountains and things that we all appreciate, but right. that truly makes a home, I think, huh? Yeah, it really does. And been involved with so many community projects, you know, getting Elqual ski trails homologated and building, working with the DNR to build the Blue Bay Ridge ski trails and working with the Ishpeming Ski Club and on their trails and their jumps. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's home. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I love it here. Do you remember those old iconic E.F. Hutton says ads? Um, there were two people, you know, in the ad is usually two people talking in a crowded area and one says to the other, well, E.F. Hutton says, and then everything goes totally quiet and all the people in the area go quiet and everyone leans in to, to hear what E.F. Hutton may have said. 
my experience is that the U.S. ski scene, more than anyone else, this represents you. So if, okay. if, if uh, <laughs> I think if someone were in a ski lodge or in a retail store and were to say, well, Sten Feldheim says, I think people would stop whatever they were doing and listen, and then afterwards approach and start saying how you impacted their life and how much they look up and respect you. I know of no greater compliment than this, and I think you are the one person that I know in the ski world that this fits the most. Well, thank you. That's an incredible compliment. Yeah, and it's, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've seen this firsthand when people find out that my daughter also is an NMU wildcat. It always leads to a conversation about how you inspired them or made their life better somehow and how grateful they were to be, have been a wildcat under your tutelage. Always. Well, thank you. Stan, you you're welcome. You've had such a great impact on the US ski scene, having had coached so many athletes to the point where they ended up representing the United States in World Cup and Olympic Games. A great many of these athletes then turned around and became coaches in their own right, surely having had been inspired by your example and training. I think everyone that has been coached by you loves and respects you and has a better life for having had, had such meaningful contact with you. One thing is for sure, today and every day is a great day to be a Wildcat. Yeah, it is, Ian. And thank you so much for this interview. I look forward to seeing the next time that I'll see you in person. I hope it'll be soon, but I don't know when that might be, but I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you. And good luck to you and everything you're involved with. And thanks for this opportunity. Of course. Take care. You too.